Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, where we talk a little bit about everything, because science fiction can be about anything. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the coulda, shoulda, woulda edition. Today, we're going to stay on Earth, but it's not necessarily the Earth we know and love. In the doors of Eden, there are many Earths, parallel Earths, where evolution takes different twists and turns, leading to sentience in many non-human species, and in fact, in many Earths, there's no sentient species ever who rises to the top of the evolutionary mountain. It all depends on which fork in the road the biology on each Earth takes. Adrian Tchaikovsky is the author of over 20 novels and winner of the Arthur C. Clarke British Fantasy and British Science Fiction Awards. And he is with me now on the line from his home in Leeds, England. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to have you. The book was fascinating, and I feel like any interview won't do it justice. But let's dive in, and and to help our audience get a feel for the story, I thought we could start with the mystery that the book opens with. We have a teenage couple who fancy themselves hunters of mythical, mysterious creatures, and they head to the countryside after a YouTube video turns up of what looks like little bird people running around, and it all seems like good fun until it isn't. So could you tell us a little bit about Lee and Mal and what happens to Mal during their little adventure? Yes. So, um, I mean, you've you, you, you set it up just about perfectly. But yes, they are um, a couple of amateur cryptid hunters. Every summer they go off somewhere and have a bit of a, a bit of a romp looking for a thing that they basically don't really believe is there. There's a video. They're sure it's fake, but they get, they're going to go along and maybe they'll get a piece in uh, the Fortean Times or something like that. Except they go on to uh, Bodmin Moor, which is a sort of a, a piece of uh, a moorland towards the south of England, which is it's kind of a cryptid place because it's known for having like supposed big cats wandering around it and all sorts of stuff. And they encounter the real deal. They step from the moor to some other place, which is also the moor, but in a very different world with a very different climate. And as it turns out, very different occupants. And there are, there are suggestions that some sort of um, traffic between these two realities has been going on for a long time because of the, there are monuments which seem to show um, that the places align at various times. And only Lee comes back. And um, that starts with a four-year period of her basically not entirely sure what she experienced, not sure whether she was, she saw what she remembers, not sure whether she's going, she's going mad. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book, and I assume readers really enjoy, is that you've created all these alternate Earths, and there are excerpts, which I think at first maybe I didn't realize that's what I was reading, but they're interspersed throughout the book. They're, they're supposedly excerpts from a book called Other Edens, and they're by a University of California professor, Ruth Emerson, and she's describing all these different Earths where different species have become dominant. 
and in many cases, sentient. And I guess what I'm getting at is what's remarkable is that each story in its own way undermines the story we tell about humans, that our dominance, basically, of Earth was somehow inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's one of the big things you, tend, you, you do run into in studies of evolution is this assumption that we are kind of what it was all aimed towards. When, of course, we're, yeah, we're only one rung on a ladder that's going to run a long way behind, beyond us anyway. And if the conditions had been slightly different, we would have been very different. I mean, you only have to look at the rest of life on Earth, and very little of it is particularly like us. And so, I mean, I was, I was very influenced by um, a scientist and writer, Stephen Jay Gould, and his book, Wonderful Life on this, because that's the argument he's making about very early life is that the, the familiar forms of animals that we know today need not have been the result of that initial sort of explosion of complex life in the Cambrian period. Those excerpts, those kind of thought experiments of how evolution might go and how other sentient races might have developed from completely different starting points was very much the point of the book, to be honest. I mean, that was I, I needed to find effectively a plot that humans could get involved in that would showcase all of those different Earths. I suppose it's all fabrication, so it's all it's all imagination, and yet there's a clear logic. You know, you've written this character, this author, Professor Ruth Emerson. Her voice very carefully and intriguingly walks you through the sort of if-then. Well, you know, the circumstances were this way, and so that's why huge salamander sluggish creatures ended up dominating, or immortal trilobites or huge cockroaches like the conclusion so surprising but each there's a connection there's a joint each step of the way so i guess you know can you give a little insight into how you went about creating these different genealogies yeah absolutely i mean i i've been a very keen student of biology and paleontology for a long time so i had a lot of it already kind of in in my toolkit to go with but one of the things i discovered um i i dealt with um wider evolution in an earlier book called Children of Time. And I felt in order to sell it to my readership, I basically had to show my working and had to walk through it because otherwise you get into this kind of, well, it's a science fiction trope, there are giant spiders in outer space, but it's kind of not being presented as a realistic thing so much as a let's have a fight with giant spiders. Whereas in this, because the spiders were the point, I knew I kind of needed to make the science behind the spiders as reasonable as possible in the same way here in order to fit with the fact that I'm telling a real world modern day human story at the same time. I didn't want to just throw, oh, this is the world where there are dragons or this is, you know, this is the world where everyone has three heads or whatever. I needed to build logically step by step from the real creature, whether it's a trilobite or a saber toothed cat or something like that that I was working on and, and work with really a lot of kind of um, evolutionary memes that people would be familiar with and um, g- genuine pieces of evolution that we have seen. So, for example, the immortality of the trilobites, um, which, I, which I've got to say the trilobites are, are the ones I'm particularly fond of. Their functional immortality is based on the way that crab genetics works. Uh, so, so lobsters have a similar kind of longevity because their genetic code doesn't decay in the way that ours does. So they don't get old. They have other problems which kill them off. Um, so I had to work out how the problem trilobites would get over those. But it's all it all is all based as much as possible in genuine science, if occasionally misappropriated. Well, those trilobites are pretty amazing. I mean, they're the only ones who, without 
ruining the story. I mean, they're the only ones who who pr- probably have the best chance of success, given the the disaster, the the potential disaster that you paint in the book, of of surviving. I think. Um, mm. So they are very impressive. I, in fact, I was going to ask you who your favorite was. So you've just revealed it. So, so who is maybe your least favorite then? Because I, I would like to talk a little bit more about the imaginative worlds that you've created. Um, the, hard, the hardest one to write was, I mean, I, I, anyone who knows much of my writing will know I'm very fond of insects and spiders and really pretty much all, all sorts of creatures that most people don't like. The hard one to write was there's a short section about the Permian mass extinction. And it's hard because it's, it was kind of heartbreaking to do because I effectively had to invent a series of civilizations purely for the purposes of wiping them out. Because it, it, um, it's an, an event in our history where about 90-95% of the species we know basically cease to exist. So it made sense that various, if I was working with all these parallel worlds, there would be a number of worlds where the story of any kind of advanced life on the planet kind of just stopped there. And so that that was quite quite even though it's quite a short uh, short section, it was quite grueling to write. Let's also talk about just the idea of parallel worlds. I suppose it's a trope that comes up in science fiction. Mm. Uh, it always makes for a great story because you can set off in a new direction. But I've always wondered how much, if any, science might be behind it. I mean, is it all speculative? As far as you know, are there formulas that, at least in theory, could explain it? I mean, we talked about the scientific basis for some of the sentient creatures you, you created, the plausibility, where you found plausibility in current science. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you know of or did research about that could give us insight into this concept of a parallel universe or Earth? I mean, I think the, the, the scientific jury is kind of out, but I think there certainly are scientists who argue that there are parallel universes. Um, I think think when you get to even i mean i mean science fiction is very keen on the idea well you know you can have a parallel earth where you could literally meet your own kind of evil twin and it's it you know it's earth but some other a war went a different way or some other you know technological development turned up earlier and so there is a recognizable history and then it deviates there's a whole idea that the universe is constantly branching every time you get any kind of um quantum level decision so that you could theoretically have a, a world that just deviated yesterday and you, know, you have your sliding doors moment and then they go off in different areas. But I think the sort of parallel universes that are being talked about are probably just the idea, well, there's another universe, but because it would diverge potentially at the creation point of both universes, they're not going to be an Earth. Yeah, so many things will have, will have happened differently that it will be it will quite possibly not even be recognizable as a universe. But... I did a certain amount of research, very little of it, which actually made it into the book at the end of the day, because, frankly, it gets very, very complicated. My math and physics is not not quite up to dealing with the very high-concept stuff, frankly, but it is a genuine sort of area of scientific study, and every so often you see an article saying, well, we found this thing, and we think it might be some sort of echo or signal from a parallel reality or something like that. And as far as I know, nothing has been so found that is that is generally accepted to be so, but who knows? And I suppose the, the parallel worlds concept that you're speaking of, where the divergence might have occurred at the Big Bang, in that scenario, most likely, there's no leakage between the worlds. They exist on different planes or different dimensions. There seems there seems to be an idea, and I'm going to say I haven't don't quite have my head around it, but there seems to be an idea that we could potentially pick up some sort of information or resonance from 
So it's an ice cream van going on the background, I know. Yes, it has a certain amount of charm. It places you somewhere. <laughs> in an actual universe, and in a universe we can all relate to. <laughs> yes, there seems to be an idea, an idea that you, we could theoretically detect and receive information from other universes, at a, presumably at a kind of a subatomic level. But I think that's obviously a long way from physically you know, opening up a portal and going there. In contrast to uh, the Doors of Eden, in which case there are cracks forming between these worlds, hence the ability yeah. for your characters to travel between them and meet some of these other sentient species. Yes, or for them to come to us, of course. Exactly. I was thinking a little bit about how they used to say the sun never set on the British Empire. And then in your book, you really, you're really you're setting the sun not only on the British Empire, but really on the human race by framing our Earth among a gazillion other Earths. We're not so special anymore, and certainly Great Britain isn't. Well, yes, I mean, I mean, as humanity's place in evolution and um, Britain's place in history, I suppose there's a certain parallel <laughs> to the way I'm treating them both. The main human characters are all British, of different kinds of British. I mean, there's mm. gay and trans and immigrants and children of immigrants, and there's really straight lace MI5 <laughs> folks and... And then you've also thrown in a, a racist, xenophobic, unethical, I would say, kind of gangstery businessman. So you've got a whole range, but there was this sense of Britishness. Is there? I mean, is there more to be said about having fun with the British character and some of with some of your characters? Um, well, I think. I mean, look, as you say, they're all they are all very British. They're, you know, I mean, I obviously, I mean. There's probably more Britishness in them than I'm personally aware of, because I myself am, am am just as British. But yes, you've got yeah the straight the straight lace dust, but also you've got sort of the counterculture elements with Lee and Mao. Hopefully, there's a lot of fond Britishness in it, and obviously there's also an acknowledgement that there's uh, there are elements of the British character about which one can't really be quite so fond. Are you talking about the the xenophobia? Yeah, yeah, which um, which, which is very much uh, you know it. it honestly, is, is more topical now than it was when I wrote the book, unfortunately. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the nature of evil, because... Mm. Oh, here we go. I'll take yeah, a vanilla double scoop. Yeah, it school's out time, unfortunately, so... That's a good background music to talk about evil, the ice cream truck music. Mm. The two evils that stood out for me, one is it's the evil of the universe, so to speak. And I guess evil mm. isn't the right word because that sounds intentional, but it sort of plays a, a bad guy because these connections between these parallel worlds, there's a, there's a problem emerging which could lead to the yeah. destruction. And so that's kind of a, a bad character that all the characters are kind of battling against. And then you have this very deliberate conscious bad guy, Daniel Rove, who's the person I was referring to before, who basically despises everyone and everything, like every every other character, because they're gay or they're trans or they're, their ancestry is from another country, and he also doesn't like any of the other sentient species. So I wonder if you could just talk about kinds of evil and badness. So we have the threat, and the threat is big and impersonal and you know, there's not, the threat is not a thing that wants to destroy us. It's not a kind of an a, invading alien armada or anything like that. It is just the nature of the universe is going to get to the point where we will no longer be, and some sort of responsible action is needed before then. And then we have the way the characters respond to the threat. And the, the thing with Rove, you know, he is absolutely an intolerant bigot, but his response to that threat is, how can I profit from this? 
how can I make this so that I and mine survive and to hell with everything else? Whereas you have other characters looking at it as in, well, how can we basically turn aside this threat so that everything can survive? And honestly, that, it, I mean, again, this book was written before the whole pandemic kicked off. But it was already a kind of a, a split response. You, we were seeing things like climate change, but the pandemic was really the whole thing in microcosm, looking at the way that some people decided, well, how can I make this, make personal capital or financial capital out of this, while other people were you know, working every, every hour there was to just to try and help everyone get through it. So I, I mean, what I'm, I'm doing in Doors of Eden with looking at the way Rove responds compared to the way that some of the other characters respond to the problem the big problem is just highlighting what i think is a very human response um i mean in a crisis you can kind of see who people really are from whether they are helping helping the next person along or whether they're helping themselves the pandemic in a way is a little like the situation with the parallel universes i mean there's sort of a natural phenomena that appears to be occurring that is a threat yeah on a a longer but frankly only slightly longer time scale we'll have the same, we'll be looking at the same issue with climate change and if and the thing with climate change the same thing will hamstring us will be people going for personal profit and advantage rather than coming together to solve the problem right right at one point your characters are given the choice of living in whichever of the earths they want to so that got me curious. If you had a choice, which would you choose? I know you like the trilobites. It would be a lonely, yeah, it would be a bit of a lonely, uh, lonely place to go. I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's difficult to say without spoiling, without spoiling it too much, but there, there's a world that features heavily that is kind of just next door, as it were, to us, evolutionarily speaking. And I think they probably got it worked out the best. And, you know, you'd be able to kind of, set, I think, even as a modern human, you'd be able to adjust and settle down there. Yes, it's greener and and more peaceful there. That's mm. that. Yeah, I thought I thought I might do that as well. Although the absence of cities might get a little boring. I mean, my sense was that there weren't any cities there. Yes, I mean, and again, that's also that's drawn from that particular evolutionary science of the idea of um, a species that seems to be living in small communities compared to uh, modern humans. I know that you have a new book coming out soon, and so I thought maybe you might want to give a little preview of what people can expect and, and when that's coming out. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So this is um, Shards of Earth, which is the first of a space opera series. It's coming out next month in the UK, but I think it's August release for the States from Orbit. So this is a more of a full-on space opera. It's got fast satellite travel, it's got artificial gravity, it's got all the fun tech that I couldn't work into my kind of more science based science fiction because it probably isn't really possible. The basic shtick for Shards of Earth is just after we were getting out and starting um, colonies and meeting alien races out in the stars, a great big moon-sized lump of crystal turns up and completely reworks the Earth by turning it into a colossal avant-garde sculpture, killing everyone on it. And then similar things turn up and try and do the same thing to various other human colonies and humanity spends the best part of a century running away until we develop a human weapon called an intermediary which is able to make contact with these things which we've called architects and as soon as we make contact they just go away the book then picks up about 50 years after the end of the war after um humanity has a chance to both to build back up and also start sort of fragmenting and uh getting into spats with its neighbors and things like that. 
and just about at the time where everyone is, is absolutely sure that the architects are gone for good, the first signs of their reappearance turn up and everyone is thrown, everything is thrown into complete chaos. Yes, it's, 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 a, it's a full-on space opera, so I got the chance to write Space Battles, which is not a thing I'd had much of a, a go at before, and lots of fun aliens and a, the crew of a salvaged starship pottering about the galaxy, getting into trouble and all that fun stuff. Sounds amazing. I'm a little stressed out hearing about it. I mean, there's there's room for a prequel series, it sounds like, cause just to get to that um, point. There is, but I think it would be... I found it was more interesting to write from the point of view of that kind of, almost that, that sort of post-war PTSD sort of perspective, um, rather than sort of one more kind of war story. So um, t- uh, telling a story with, with that's already coming with all of that kind of historical momentum, I think gave me a lot more to uh, write about. And I'm curious, when you worked, did you in fact start at that point in the future, in that post-traumatic stress moment, or did you experiment and start more at the beginning and then make that decision that it would be better to start further along in the in the story? It was always going to start there. Um, it was always going to start there. I, I did, I mean, I do do a lot of prep. I do a lot of world building before I start writing. So I had things like, you know, I, I had um, sketches and a timeline and all the different factions and so forth lined up. So I had that, I had that sort of that history already built, which is just yeah, it's part part of my standard writing process. But no, I mean I I think the you know, the starting image was the idea of of the um, at the beginning of the book one of the characters visits where Earth is and is kind of looking out on the kind of this bizarre grotesque sort of beautiful sculpture that Earth got turned into, and that was very much the, like the core image to that I knew I'd be kicking the book off. It's also what's on the cover. Excellent. Oh, you start with the cover. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, great. Well, something to look forward to. And I want to thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on. I've been talking to Adrian Tchaikovsky, author of The Doors of Eden, which came out last year from Orbit. And look for his new book. Again, what is it? Shards of Earth? Is that right? Shards of Earth, yes coming out shortly, both in Great Britain and a little bit later in the United States. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. If you've enjoyed the show, it would be great if you subscribe. Consider leaving a review or giving five stars. That would be really lovely. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I am Rob Wolf. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network. Marshall Poe is the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. Stay safe and well, enjoy your books, and see you next time.